Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. Hello and welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy, and today we've got a returning guest, a great guest, one of the foremost experts in healthcare, the healthcare industry. He's got a great record of forecasting what might happen. He has a great analytical mind about what has happened and more importantly, what is happening. And so from California today, welcome my friend and colleague, Nate Kaufman. Nate, thanks so much for you being on the Common Bridge today. It's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too, Rich. Thanks for having me. I encourage everyone to go back and listen to prior podcast episodes with Nate. I think it's a great grounding in the subject matter. And Nate and I were talking this past week about how little people understood about the healthcare industry and the healthcare financing and the way the various players worked. Nate, you want to take a shot at like what's the business model look like and who's out there and, and what's some of the noise? Sure. Uh, the business model makes no sense. And so don't blame me for what I'm going to describe. Um, if you look at a typical health system, there are several issues. The first issue is that Medicare and Medicaid, which are the two primary payers for a health system, do not cover the full cost of care. My bet is that Medicare and Medicaid pay about 85% of the cost of care. So if you look at a typical healthcare system, 85%, I'm sorry, 60% to 65% of their patients are covered by Medicare and Medicaid, and they cover about 85% of the cost of the care they receive. Then there's about 5% of the patients that pay nothing. So that leaves about 35% of the patients who have to make up the deficit for the other 65% of the patients. And thus, we see this big differential between Medicare, say, and the commercial insurance companies. In fact, without the payments, the higher payments from the commercial insurance companies, hospitals and health systems would probably go bankrupt. So there's a thing called, there used to be called the Iron Triangle. It's now called the Iron Square. There's four components. There's cost, quality, access, and choice. And they're all related. And what people don't understand is if we lower cost, the question is, what do we have to give up? Do we have to give up access like Canada? Do we have to give up choice like some of the HMOs? Do we have to give up quality and not send people to the super specialists who would be better able to provide care than some others? And so when people talk to me about hospital prices and how high they are, the first question is, which prices are you talking about? Are you talking about Medicare and Medicaid, which don't cover the cost? Are you talking about the prices charged to people that don't pay anything? Or are you talking about the charges that are the prices that are paid by the commercial insurance companies that are forced to subsidize Medicare and Medicaid? So that that is as simple as I can put it. So Nate, that's a great description and, and the, the trade-offs. Everybody wants instant access. They want the ultimate specialist. And of course, they want to pay little or nothing. And just for the, our audience out there that's 
not sophisticated around healthcare. When Nate talks about it doesn't cover the cost of care, that means that the physician or the hospital or the clinic, you know, they might receive a hundred dollars in payment from the insurer, yet it costs them $150 to provide the service when you look at the facility and the staff and the supplies and everything that goes into providing that care. So absent the subsidies coming from elsewhere in the market, those providers won't be around. And Nate, you talked about hospital pricing and you know the prior administration, you know, frankly made a big deal out we're going to disclose hospital pricing. I think you and I had a few guffaws about that. And let me just tee up the question that has something of an answer in it. How futile is that? Well, it's extremely futile for several reasons. First of all, about 10% of any population consumes probably 80% of the healthcare dollar. So the people that are generating the highest hospital bills don't shop. <laughs> They're in the system because they've got cystic fibrosis or they've got pancreatic cancer. And and so there's no shop. They're not going to go online and start shopping. The second, and in my opinion, more important issue is the fact that healthcare is not a commodity. I know for a fact that some doctors are better than others at treating certain conditions. Some hospitals are better than treating other hospitals. And the idea that a consumer can just look at price and make a decision about their life and their ability to get healed from a condition. And I'll give you one example since we want to bring it down to a consumer level. Um, A very prominent person in San Diego went to one hospital and they told him he got a test. And based on that test results, they told him to go home. He's got a very aggressive form of prostate cancer and he should get his affairs in order. Wow. Um, his son called me because I know everybody in San Diego, and I know I found the best urologist that treats prostate cancer. I contacted the hospital CEO. I got him in the next day. It turns out that was a misdiagnosis. Mm-hmm. All he needed was some proton therapy, and he is now cured and a very happy yeah. person. But that's not unusual. There are hospitals that do better jobs at heart surgery than other hospitals. And there are hospitals that do better jobs at uh, pulmonary care than other hospitals. And by the way, the CMS quality indicators are just a bunch of rubbish. CMS is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. That is the federal agency that regulates uh, the two biggest insurance programs, both federally funded and one state and federally funded in Medicaid. And they're trying to quantify what quality is. We share the view that we're not there yet. And and I, I think your belief is that they're not even headed in the right direction at this time. Oh, that's correct. I mean, using my example, there would have been no way to go on the website for the government websites or any health plans websites, because the health plans are the same. They believe that all healthcare is the same and the only difference is cost. And the cheaper, the quote, higher value. But that's not true. A low cost misdiagnosis is worthless. And so getting back to Medicare, Medicaid quality indicators, they don't get down to the level of detail of looking at the doctors and those outcomes by service, like urology, or prostate cancer. So there's no way for them to provide any useful information to a patient other than price. 
And one other example, one of the more expensive providers of care in the country is Mayo Clinic. And what Walmart did is they actually looked at true quality by service line and designated Mayo Clinic one of their centers of excellence. When they sent patients who suspected they had cancer or were diagnosed with cancer to Mayo Clinic's center of excellence, 10% of those people turned out not to have cancer, and 55% of those people had a change in their treatment plan. So if you just look at cost, yeah, Mayo is probably a higher cost, but again, what what value is there to a wrong treatment plan? And so simply looking at price is so short-sighted because if the person gets the wrong diagnosis or the wrong treatment plan, their total cost of care will be so much higher than somebody that does it right the first time. Indeed, if not paying for it with their very life. And Nate, to talk a little bit further about the pricing, if you and I were on the same health plan, be it Medicare or be it a commercial plan like a Blue Cross or United, and I went to ABC Hospital and you went to Mayo, would it matter to our insurer where we went or would they pay Mayo and ABC the same? So let's not talk about Medicare because it get it's it's regulated, but in a commercial insurance market, if you went to Mayo for a procedure, they would probably get paid a lot more than just about any other hospital in Minnesota. And that's because it's a negotiation between Mayo and the insurance companies. And the insurance companies ask the following question. If I don't agree to Mayo's rates, can I sell premium to people telling them that Mayo isn't included in our network. That's their calculus. Their calculus isn't, hey, Mayo Clinic can cure these procedures or these conditions better than anybody else, and it's worth paying them more because the total cost of care will be less because the insurance companies and the government aren't focused on total cost of care. What they're focused on is cheap, and cheap care is not necessarily high-value care. And I think you've recently published on that very topic about the lower cost. Indeed, it's, it's the reverse. Lowest cost is often the worst type of care. But moving on, Nate, the regulations that are on the insurance companies, there is something called medical loss ratio, or MLR, and this is designed that of the premiums that are received by the insurance company, that there's statutory levels of how much needs to go out to pay for patient care. And you've done some research lately on MLR, some deep dives into some data. What can you share with our audience about your early findings and knowing that you're still on it? So the MLR requirement, that is that the health plan pays a certain percentage of what they collect was a function of the Affordable Care Act. And so the government requires each insurance company to publish their data on a website, but it's very difficult to understand. We developed a tool that makes it easy to understand. What we're finding first and foremost is that there isn't as much of a relationship between premium increases and medical costs as the insurance companies want you to believe. That is, in many cases, premiums are going up higher than medical costs because many of the insurance companies are for-profit and their primary focus is how am I going to generate my margin for my shareholders? 
And so what's happening now is in many markets and in many states, the insurance companies are having to rebate the money that they're not spending on medical care back to the uh, employer and employee. What does that mean? It means that they're overpricing their product, but they still blame the providers. You see, insurance companies take on average 18% of the premium, 18 cents out of every dollar goes to the insurance companies. Probably about the same amount of money as the insurance companies spend on doctors, they take for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I would argue the relative value of those insurance companies (laughs) aren't worth the same as the services provided by the physicians to the consumers. So what we're learning, generally speaking, is that the insurance companies are not necessarily being forthright in terms of what's causing the cost increases in our country. Indeed, that the insured, the subscriber uh, or the beneficiary, is it doesn't matter what it shows on that bill that uh, your hospital or your physician charged you this what that hospital or physician's going to get is actually going to be set by the contract or by Medicare or by Medicaid. It's a crazy system that has outlived its usefulness. And correct me if I'm wrong, one of the maneuvers that the big for-profit insurance companies tried to put in place in order to thwart the intent of uh, medical loss ratios was pharmacy benefit managers. And correct me where I'm wrong here, Nate, because I'm not sure I've got this right, but if you had a pharmacy benefit manager, you could show that there was a cost of a drug being $10 and say, all right, that's $10 against my medical loss ratio. But if you sold enough of those drugs through your plan, you got a rebate, but that rebate wasn't counted as a decrement to the medical loss ratio. Am I describing that right? Because I don't feel like I'm on real firm ground there. It's really complicated. What happens is that Insurance companies are really good at evaluating claims and paying claims for medical care. So if you go to the emergency room, they send the bill to the insurance company, the insurance company pays it. What they're not good at is evaluating and paying claims for drug costs. So they've shifted that over to a new business called the PBM, Pharmacy Benefit Managers. And in the beginning, what these PBMs did was primarily negotiate better costs for the consumer and pay claims. What's happened, though, in the last couple of years, 80% of the claims go through four pharmacy benefit managers, all of whom are owned by for-profit insurance companies. <laughs> of course. So they can play all kinds of games. One of the games they play is called spread. So the pharmacy benefit manager takes a, a drug, say a Z-Pack, they add a 20% profit onto that and pass it on to their insurance company. The PBM just generated more cost for the system because they added 20% cost. The second thing that they do is that for brand name drugs, they negotiate with their own health plans to take a rebate. So if a drug costs $100, when it's charged $100 in the market, 18 to 30% of that $100 gets rebated back to the insurance companies, essentially to contribute to their profits. It actually contributes to the MLR. But by owning the pharmacy piece and the health plan piece, you can play games and try to balance it 
so that you maximize your profits in both areas. They'll tell you, well, they're trying to reduce cost. There's not evidence of that. The evidence is that what they're doing is, is essentially, as I said, trying to make maximize profits in both the health plan component and in the pharmacy benefit component. You and I have spoken many times about this, the case or actually the non-case for employer-sponsored health plans. Kind of the worst of all worlds. A person has this illusion that they're covered, but if you get so sick that you can't work, you no longer have benefits. So the time you need it the most, you don't have it. Or if you age out and you reach a Medicare age, well, you know, you're out of that risk pool as well. And the tax advantage way, I don't think there's a case today for for getting your health insurance at work. People are, you know, becoming gig workers or they're working shorter terms. And to do something that is longitudinal like healthcare, yet every time you change a job, you change plans, or the plan changes because the employer shops it, or the rules change is a little crazy. But why does it exist? Health plans have a special tax break where people aren't charged for that compensation they're receiving. I think it's obvious this is a crazy case. Why do we still have this and how do we get out of it? Well, let me talk about why it's even worse first. The health plan is is selected by the employer, not by the employee at all in most cases. And J.D. Powers did a survey of 21 either regions or states. And what they found is in every state, where there was Kaiser Permanente, they got by far the highest rating. And as a general rule, the largest for-profit health plans got the lowest rating, even though their premiums tended to be lower. So what might be good for an employer, which is low premiums, high co-payments, high deductibles, may actually be really bad for the employees. And when I talked to J.D. Powers about it, what they said was that the vast majority of people don't burn through their deductible during the year. And for this arbitrary reason that the health plans created, every 12 months, the deductible gets reinstated. So they really don't have insurance. But again, the point here is what's necessarily good for the employer, which is cheap, is not necessarily good for the employee, which is high value. So Kaiser, which doesn't have the same copayment burden, doesn't focus on denying or delaying care, doesn't go, quote, out of network with providers, with the uh, employees, physicians, because they won't take a deeper discount. Kaiser gets these really high ratings, and the most aggressive for-profit insurance companies get the worst ratings. So not only, I don't know how to fix it necessarily. Well, people say Medicare for all. As I mentioned earlier, Medicare pays about 85 cents on the dollar of cost. Over the last decade, Medicare has increased reimbursement for physicians an average of zero to 1% per year, forcing physicians to go into employment with, uh, with health systems or PE firms in order to generate a decent living. And what people say is, well, if we just go to Medicare for all, that'll be fine. Well, if you go to Medicare for all, you're going to lower reimbursement. Physicians basically are going to drop out of the system because they're in short supply and you're going to be left with cheaper physicians, not better physicians. And that's pretty scary. One last example. 
in San Diego right now where I live, many of the mental health professionals are don't take anything because there's oh. such a shortage of mental health. They won't even take Medicare. You pay them cash and you figure it out from there. And we see that around the country where there's going to be a huge shortage. One out of five doctors right now could retire of retirement age. And those physicians are just not going to take bargain basement rates just because Medicare decides that's what they should take. So people have a misconception about, well, we can just do this or just do that and things will be okay. Remember the healthcare square that I talked about earlier. Access will suffer, quality will suffer, or choice will suffer if you lower cost. Well, you and I are in strong agreement with that. And you've heard my proposal, which is take all of the tax-supported health plans, Medicare, Medicaid, VA, TRICARE, and so forth, put it in one bureaucracy. It's a base level of care. Every citizen gets it by virtue of being a citizen of the United States. You pay for it on a sliding scale right off the 1040. Again, not foreign concepts that don't exist elsewhere in the healthcare payment ecosystem. You allow there to be private insurance for people that want better access or more choice above and beyond that. But if a, an employer provides that to you, it is not tax deductible at all. It, it's, it's just compensation. And it would force the insurance companies to go make a market for a value add. And just kind of as a punctuation, I actually read the Medicare for all bill. And it's, well, first of all, it's not Medicare and it's not for everybody. But other than that, it just empowers literally who's ever in the office of the president that day who appoints the Secretary of Health and Human Services, because the Secretary of Health and Human Services basically gets to define every bit of care in the country and it would be illegal to provide it any other way. But to your point, people really don't know what they're getting. Let me just comment about that because there's two ideas embedded in that that are important. The first idea is that every healthcare provider, hospital, physician, has to deal with 30 different insurance companies, and they each have their own way of getting a bill and returning a bill and denying a bill and so on and so forth. If you want to streamline healthcare, you want to save 15% without touching patient care right now, mandate at least that all insurance companies have to use the same forms and the same methodologies for revenue cycle. That's number one. Number two, the thing that scares me scared me most when I was a commercial insurance patient and why I won't go into Medicare Advantage is that there is a financial consequence to medical need. Mm -hmm. If somebody says to me, uh, if, if a doctor says you need a proton therapy, which is very expensive, I have to go to an insurance company in most cases and get that either approved or denied. Meanwhile, you know, it's probably there's cancer going on and this could take weeks. An American Medical Association study showed that 30 percent of doctors say that preauthorization, this process, these barriers that the insurance companies put up to define medical need has caused um, major health impacts on their patients. So the second part of this, if you had what you were talking about, is a central location for determining medical need. Because right now there's a huge conflict of interest. I don't know if a, if a health plan is picking a drug because it's more efficacious or because they get a higher rebate. And there's some evidence if you YouTube PBMs and look at some of the experts that talk about it, 
there's some evidence that PBMs, who are owned by health plans, are using higher cost drugs because those drugs give them a higher percentage rebate than using a lower cost drug. So we don't know what the medical criteria is. And do we really trust people who make more money by denying and delaying care? I don't. Well, you called that out last time you were on the Common Bridge about a system where medical necessity is is separated from the financial impact of what that medical necessity might be. Because frankly, what happens today is that the insurance company exercises that incentive, says you're not going to get this particular kind of care. Many people will just go, oh, I guess I, I don't need that and suffer the medical consequences as well as the cost consequences. Uh, And very few are going to be equipped to say, well, wait a minute, we really do need to get this. And then you exhaust physicians who are recommending that course of care. Clearly, we'd have to find a trustworthy group, you know, given some of the dialogue in other areas, I think that's going to be tough. But you and I both know a lot of really credible people, particularly in the university health systems that have a clear view on what's working and what's not working. And that kind of brings us to the public square these days, COVID and COVID testing. There's been some news recently about price gouging around required COVID tests. What's going on? I guess there was a lawsuit filed in Nebraska in in recent days. What's happening with the COVID testing and the cost of individuals? So the way health, health insurance and pricing works is... A healthcare provider contracts with an insurance company for a specific rate. So let's say a COVID test, and let's say that rate is $120. And they do that for all of the services. Now, if the health insurance company comes in and says, nah, it's not going to be $120, even if it costs you $120, we want to pay you $115. The only thing that that healthcare provider can do is say no, and now we don't have a contract. And so the good news for the healthcare provider is they can charge whatever they want. The bad news is that that health plan is going to do everything they can to put that healthcare provider out of business. They're going to divert as many patients as they can away. Mm-hmm. They're going to withhold, they're not even going to pay the health care provider for the service. They'll pay the patient and say, now you have to go after the patient to get paid, which creates more bad debt. So recently, the what's called AHIP, which is the Health, Insur- Health Insurers Trade Association, came out with this big deal about the fact that out-of-network providers are charging more than, quote, market rates. And the answer is, of course they are. They're charging more because AHIP, your members, are so unreasonable today that they're expecting hospitals and health systems and doctors to provide care at costs below which they can do that. And so they go out of network. And then when they're out of network, they're in financial survival mode. And so anywhere they can make an extra buck, they're going to do it. Otherwise, they either close or they sell or they have to lay off employees and doctors. So charging more when you're out of network is a survival mode that actually benefits the community and is a signal in some cases that the payers are, or the insurance companies are being unreasonable so that they can maintain their profitability. Not in every case. Sometimes the health system is asking for more money because they're way too inefficient. But to make a blanket statement like it's price gouging, is ju- it's just 
I hate to use the term fake news, but it's fake news. And the other thing that that survey said is that 6% more providers are out of network today than they were at the pandemic, meaning that the negotiating stance of the health insurance companies has become so ruthless that more health systems are willing to subject themselves to this fight for survival because the health insurance companies are being so unreasonable. While all of this is going on, United Healthcare, Anthem, and others are making record profits. Yeah, it, it's it's time for a reform of the system because look, what we've got here in a, a, a constituency that's not heard from are the people that are too young for Medicare, are doing too well for Medicaid, don't work for an employer, maybe they're small businesses, and they have to go on the exchanges or buy individual insurance. And I know many, many people that are in the you know 30s, 40s, 50s, prime work years, that are paying seven and $8,000 a year for a premium. And on top of that, they have a deductible seven, eight thousand, ten thousand dollars. So essentially you've got catastrophic coverage for the price of a very significant part of your family budget. I believe the household average household income is fifty-two to fifty-five thousand ish right now. And if you're going out of pocket after taxes for eight thousand dollar premium, and then when you require medical services, you've got another $8,000 exposure. I don't know how you're getting money for a mortgage or to pay that student debt or to buy a car or to raise a family. It just The numbers just don't work. Well, let me tell you how you do it. You don't pay the health care provider. You're deductible yeah. and co-payment. You stiff them. And that's what's also happening. So when you see a price or this issue of high prices... Um, a recent survey showed that 23% of the people that have insurance are what's called underinsured, meaning they can't afford to pay that copayment and deductible. So they're going to pay their house payment, they're going to pay their car payment, and the one thing that they're not going to do is pay that deductible that they owe the doctor or the hospital. That's the last thing that they're going to do, and then complain that the doctor and hospital are too expensive. One other thing that's going on, and this is a little esoteric, but the whole uh, individual market exchange program is based on the silver plan. So they, what the government does is provide premium subsidies for people in the silver, based on the cost of the silver plan. Most of the people in the exchanges get a subsidy from the government to cover most of the cost of their premium. So what's happened is the insurance companies recognize this and have raised their premiums like $150 oh, over no. two years because oh, no. there's no price sensitivity in the individual market. Now, once you get that, that premium subsidy, what you can do is you can buy the silver plan um, and probably pay some more out of pocket, or you can go into the lower cost bronze plan. Now, the bronze plan is lower cost because it has higher deductibles. So, all of a sudden, you're paying nothing for your health care premiums because you've gone into the bronze plan, which is all a strategy that was created by the insurance companies. And the bronze plans now have a high deductible and high copayment. Who gets stiffed by these low income people who have just bought health insurance on the, based on bronze? So it's really and by the way, to make it even more complicated, if you buy a gold plan or a platinum plan, 
you have almost no copayments and deductibles. But the insurance companies have increased the cost of those so much that they're kind of slanting people to go into the bronze plan. They get paid their premiums, but the providers don't get paid the deductibles and copayments. Yeah, and 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 or people attempt to pay them and realize they can't and declare medical bankruptcy. It's a crazy system. Again, you've heard my proposal to fix that. I think we've had yourself and four or five other experts. Uh, everybody kind of comes to the same place. And the frustrating thing for me is that we elect people. They're Democrats, Republicans, and a couple independents that are serving in the Congress uh, or at state government as a president that we elect. And yet, they can't figure this thing out. And I know that they're beholden. There's a lot of lobbyist money from the health plans that get these favorable tax treatments, that get away with this kind of stuff. Uh, and the pharma companies are right behind them. And I know, look, I know the pharma companies have become the darlings. It's really kind of weird all of a sudden that people on a different end of the political spectrum are now going, yay, Pfizer, let's go. Whoever thought we'd see that in our lifetime? <laughs> but yeah. it's it's really the demand for wholesale change uh, has to come from the vast majority of people that realize that the system is broken, it isn't working, and also that the solutions are within reach if we have the will to do it. Uh, but we keep expecting the people that we elect to do something that, that they haven't done and don't seem likely to do that. Uh, Nate, what else should we talk about as far as healthcare goes? I know we can't cover the waterfront, but anything about current trends or policy recommendations or just anything that you're seeing out there? Well, I just want to comment on what you just said, which is um, it's not just politicians, it's bureaucrats. MedPAC, Medicare Payment Advisory Committee, is a group of people that advise Congress on what Medicare should do. So Medicare every year publishes a data book. And that data book is based on the Medicare um, a form that people submit to, to the, called the Medicare Cost Report. Now, in the old days, hospitals didn't employ doctors. So the Medicare Cost Report doesn't include the cost of physicians when they report the information to the government. So what happens is MedPAC ignores the fact that physicians can no longer survive in independent practice based on many of their policies, by the way. And so when they publish data on how profitable hospitals are, they don't include the huge cost of employing physicians. Oh, my. Yeah. And I've pointed this out to them, by the way, on several occasions. So they say, oh, the hospital's making a 7% margin. Well, no, no they're not. They're taking that margin and they're basically employing doctors. Because over 50% of physicians now are employed by hospitals. Why? Because Medicare and the commercial insurance companies forced them out of business. So in order to maintain their income, they had to, they had to and they, I work with doctors all the time, give up their cherished independence in order to survive in a given market. But MedPAC ignores it. They don't even consider it as part of their calculus. So we not only have politicians who don't understand the nuances of healthcare, we also have bureaucrats who are unwilling to recognize the true data. And the most important thing that I keep coming back to is this issue of price versus cost of care. I'll give you one other example. They took a patient that had a spinal deformity and sent that same patient 
to 10 different MRI centers. Well, you say an MRI center is an MRI center. If one center is willing to take $500 for a procedure, shouldn't they all be willing to take $500 for a procedure? Well, when they looked at the data, this is in the Journal of Spine, they found that there was only 20% agreement on the diagnosis and 40% of the people missed the diagnosis. So if I go to an MRI center, I want to go to some place that has a a neurospine expert radiologist, a 3T magnet, which is a lot more expensive, that, that's absolutely up to date. One other example, recent research showed that if you go to a radiologist who is subspecialized in breast imaging, the chance of an, actual, uh, of an accurate diagnosis is better. But of course, those people are more expensive. So it just gets back to this whole issue until we start focusing on the total cost of care and not on price. We're going to continue to make bad decisions and we're going to mislead the public in terms of where they should get their care. And what's driving this, I would say, is the deliberate um, propaganda put out by the commercial insurance companies and the ignorance in government among the politicians. Well, it's got to be willful ignorance. And uh, look, I've looked at lots of hospital financial statements over the decades and nobody's making 7%. They're lucky to get to break even given everything that's going on. And I've met and talked with lots of politicians. I can think of two that understood healthcare. I won't name either one of them, but one is still in the Congress, one is no longer in public service. Uh, But a lot of it is that there's not a public demand to fix it. And then people say, well, let's do what Canada does. And then you actually look at Canada, well, we don't want to do that because that's kind of get in line, (laughs) Um, you know, or or if you have cash, come to the United States. And so we're, we're sitting here stuck. And, you know, in the meantime, People do get treated, but are they getting the optimum care at that best price point? And do they have it accessible within their geography? Those are things that we're still trying to solve. And we, those, this is an issue of the day that we do need our political system to take leadership on. And we need those that report on this to actually report. I mean, Nate, wouldn't this interview with someone like you be much better on any of the I don't know, the cable news channels or NPR or any of the broadcast networks so that millions of people would hear it. Um, yeah, I'm starting to make progress, at least with the print media and healthcare, but it's taking a long time. And just to get to one of the big issues that exists today is consolidation. They say, you know what's driven up the price of healthcare? Hospitals consolidating with each other into bigger systems. And my answer is, you bet that's driven the price of healthcare up. And the reason is that most of the consolidatees, the hospitals that were brought into a larger system, were going out of business because they couldn't get fair rates from the government or the insurance company. The question isn't, should should hospitals consolidate? The question is, does that community want to go without a hospital or go without doctors? It's the same thing with physicians and hospitals consolidating. These physicians can't afford to be in private practice without taking a major haircut. And so they have no choice but to sacrifice their independence either with a, and be bought by a PE firm or by a um, health system or by an insurance company. Right. A PE firm, a private equity firm. We've seen, uh, I know during the time you and I have known each other, we've seen three cycles 
of that consolidation of physician practices. It's worked. Let me check my notes. Oh, never. Um, <laughs> and it's never going to work. It's not going to work this time. And I was in an office of a physician uh, last week who was onto it. And he said, yeah, the doctors aren't going to be here when you need them. That was a profound statement. That's exactly right. People don't understand. They just look at people like the Rand Corporation, desk jockeys like some researchers from Yale. They sit behind their computers and they run numbers. And in my opinion, they misinform the public about the realities of healthcare. Because if you don't, don't go down to the next level where I live, which is working with the doctors and watching how care is delivered, you really don't understand what's going on in healthcare. And I think what you're implying there, Nate, is that uh, people should turn off the cable news, they should turn off NPR, they should turn off the uh, network broadcasts, and they should tune into the Common Bridge because we do talk about the issues of the day with experts like yourself. We do look for solutions and we look for that common ground. And I think we can all agree. We want great health care in the United States. We've innovated so many of the breakthroughs. We want that care to be accessible to all, and we want it to be affordable. That's what we're after, and it seems that all this machinery is just pushing us in the wrong direction. Nate, any closing comments you got for our audience on the Common Bridge? Uh, this is always a delight talking to you. I don't know anybody more learned in healthcare, and I know hundreds and hundreds of people in healthcare, and I, I just really appreciate the research and your ability to deliver a consolidation of the facts like this. Really a joy. Sure. My message is to United Healthcare and Anthem and MedPAC and all the people I puked on today, my message is, is we can do better. Focus on cost of care. Listen to the consumers. We can do a lot better. And I don't want to see these enterprises go away. I want to see them do better. And unfortunately, they're doing worse. We've been talking today with Nate Kaufman of Kaufman Strategic Advisors of San Diego. This is Rich Helpy. This Common Bridge podcast is available on most podcast outlets, on YouTube TV, and at richardhelpy.com. At richardhelpy.com, you'll find a full bio on Nathan Kaufman and also a link to his website, which is Kaufman SA, Kaufman Strategic Advisors.com. And now with my guest and friend, Nate Coffin, this is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.